Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about sexual avoidance and how is that impacting your relationship, what to do if your partner is avoiding sex, why is your partner avoiding you in bed, or why are you avoiding him or her? Our guest today is Suri Cooper. But before I dive into deeper about this episode, I wanted to let you know that this week also I released the bonus episode. So uh, we talked about in, in past bonus episodes on different things around mental health and sexual challenges. We had one episode on OCD and sexual dysfunction. We had one on depression. We had one on eating disorders. And now we have a new one this week. So go ahead and check it out. And if that's something you're interested in, opt in to the email list so you can uh, learn about this specific new bonus episode. And also uh, you'll get when you sign up, you get the previous ones. Our guest today, as I mentioned, is Sari Cooper. Uh, she's a director of Center for Sex and Love, a group practice specializing in sex therapy and sex coaching based in New York City. She's also the creator of Sex Esteem, LLC, a company devoted to enriching people's confidence and knowledge about their own or their kids' sexuality through talks, webinars, and her web show, Sex Esteem with Sari Cooper. She's an ASAC certified sex therapist and certified sex therapy supervisor who is frequently called upon many outlets to comment on relationship and sexual issues. She presented in many conferences and she wrote articles for different magazines and journals. I leave a link to her full bio in a in the show notes, and you can check out her website at centerforloveandsex.com. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Suri Cooper. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm honored and excited to have sex therapist Suri Cooper on our show today. Welcome to our show, Suri. Thank you so much for having me, Naz. It's it's definitely an honor. As I was sharing with our listeners in our introduction that I, I saw your presentation on ASAC and it was wonderful. And I learned tons of great tools and strategy as a psychologist and a therapist. So it's definitely very exciting to have you here. We're going to talk about sexual avoidant couples. That's something I see a lot. And it seems like that's one of the areas of focus that you have. For those of our clients that they don't know what does that mean. How do you define sexual avoidance? Sexual avoidance is when partners minimize the sexual issue with one another and find both explicit and unconscious ways of avoiding sexual encounters with one another, but also even at times discussing the topic with one another. And it's so common. I feel it's more common than kind of like overtly uh, rejecting your partner. What of those? Uh, what are some of the implicit things that at times that you see that people are due to kind of avoid having sex with their partners? Well, they may really schedule so much in their lives that there is no time for it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I see that a lot of that in New York. We have a lot of 
high-powered, very busy professionals in our my practice, Center for Love and Sex. And so they may have very long days at work. They only have enough time after work to maybe work out or just have dinner. And then they sort of slump on the couch and go to sleep because they're so fatigued. And the weekends may be filled to the brim with social plans with friends or with family. Absolutely. And at times in LA, I see the same thing. And people are, when I kind of tell them to kind of, you got as a homework for therapy, you have to schedule kind of date night. They say, oh, we are so, our schedule is so full. And part of the things that they kind of list, it's, it's kind of seemed less important than having one-on-one time with your partner. The other way that at times I see that even people, the way they dress, it's it's interesting that many moon ago, one of my clients was telling me, I'm so mindful of choosing the clothing for this, uh, for sleepwear that will, will not, would not give the uh, wrong impression to my partner. <laughs> so as you said, that, that could be like another implicit thing that I see. Right. There are sort of signals that couples, partners give to one another, right? That say, I'm open for some sort of sensuality or sexuality, and I'm less open. One is dress, but it could be in terms of feeling ill, getting up earlier than your partner, going to bed earlier than your partner, staying up late when your partner goes to bed. I've heard a lot of that. Just saying, you know, I'm just a late night person. Right. And she's a, an early to bed person. So we can't get our schedules on track. So those are just different ways of how it shows up and doesn't address necessarily until they're in therapy some of the underlying issues that they're, they haven't dealt with yet. Absolutely. And why, why is it important for people to address that? How does this pattern impact a relationship often? So it's, it is, as I, as you said, it is one of a very common presenting issue that partners come into our practice with, whether they be straight or bi or gay or lesbian. And the reason why it's such a, an issue in a relationship is that For most people, I would just say for most people, sexuality is an organic, natural desire, just as the desire for eating is uh, essential for our well-being. So is sexuality. And the caveat I just want to put out front, for some people, having sex is not an interest, nor is it ever an interest, and it doesn't It's not due to any underlying unconscious conflicts or relational issues with their partner. It is that they've never actually had any desire for sexual contact. And those are the folks that identify as asexual. So I just wanted to put that caveat in. But for most other people, it's a way of an expression of playfulness, of liberty, of freedom, of connection, of intimacy, of love. All of those expressions get sort of stifled or frozen. And in, a, in the case of a couple, it can really de- detract from their the health of their relationship. Absolutely. And I think the other piece that at times I notice, at least some, uh, some group of people who are coming with this pattern, it's not necessarily libido kind of desire discrepancies because they have desire. They masturbate often. If there would be another partner, they would be okay with having sex. So they experience the desire. There is something going on in the relationship or in their life that kind of get them in the, get in the way of them having, wanting to have sex or kind of being able to have sex with their, 
care and partner. Right. So now you've actually, it's, you know, well articulated, put it into like two categories, right? It's almost like a tree. You have those couples that both partners are actually interested and have a libido and think about sex and masturbate, right? And But it's just with each other that they're having the problem. And then on the other fork in the road are, are the couples in which one or both partners are actually having trouble even with their own libido. And you have to address that and assess for biopsychosocial contributors to, to that problem. Thank you for that clarification. I'm kind of curious. So what are the, some of the root causes of these problems with avoidance in the couples that you see in your practice? Right. So one of the issues I see that is common is the roommate dilemma. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that sex started to dwindle or the frequency of sex started to dwindle after a couple moved in together. So they begin cohabitating and or they get married. And what what that what happens is then they become family, right? And we all know that there is something called the incest taboo, which is that you aren't supposed to have desire for your your brother or sister or parent. But what happens in unconsciously when one moves in with one's partner is that a new family has been created. And sometimes what that does is it raise the pedal uh, or break, I should say, in terms of the dual control model. We think mm-hmm. of the gas pedal and the brake pedal. It raises the brake pedal higher than the desire pedal or the gas pedal. And that is enough to squash one's natural impulse to be sexual with uh, their partner. That's so interesting, the roommate dilemma. And I never necessarily thought it as far as kind of as it relates to incest, which absolutely makes sense. The other piece that I I see that people at times they they hear this myth that sex continue to be great and actually might be better when you're emotionally kind of in the relationship and you, you it's it like you guys have more level of emotional intimacy, which could be the case. But sometimes my experience is that. The, the other part is that when the novelty kind of wears off, it's hard for people to kind of have that spontaneous arousal unless they change things in the context. What do you think about that? I'm right with you there on that. You know, and we do a lot of education with our couples and our, you know, our clients individually as well to educate them around the topic of the uh, period of limerence. Limerence is a a term that we use in sex therapy to talk about the period of the first 12 to 18 months or two years of a relationship in which we have the hots for one another. It's a mm. period of being crazy in love. And the reason why we use the word crazy is that the oxytocin is shooting off, our endorphins are shooting off, the dopamine is shooting off. So our body is actually releasing all these neurotransmitters and chemicals in our body to make us always obsess about this new partner. So it's novelty. And the education requires that once that novelty wears off, you have to anticipate and expect that you're going to be going transitioning into a new phase of a relationship, which is still bonded, but has to put an onus on each partner to invest more intentionality around one's sexual life. So and to know that it may not happen as spontaneously as it did at the beginning. And that's totally 
to be expected. And an average, if you think about that bell curve, it's it, it happens to the average uh, person. I'm so glad that you're normalizing it with saying that it's, it can happen to most people and will happen to most people because people get very disappointed because they feel like sex used to be spontaneous. And right now we have to plan for it, schedule it. I don't want to have this kind of sex. Right. I always tell people that because that is what people, you know, clients say to us, right? They're like, that is so, so unsexy that I have to actually schedule this and put this in my planner. And so I normalize it again and say, okay, so tell me about what happened when you were dating. Did one of you ask the other one out? Yes. So who asked who out? May tell me. And then I'll say, so in the case of a, you know, a, a gay couple, let's say partner A, let's call him Sam. Mm-hmm. So Sam would be the initiator to his partner, Peter. And I'll say to Sam, so how did you ask him out? How did you ask Peter out? Well, I texted him and I said, yo, what are you doing on Saturday night? I got tickets to this show. Would you like to join me? Right. And so then I would say to Peter, so what did you tell him when you, he first asked you out? And first he'll say, well, if I, well, if I was free, I'd say for sure, let's go out. Mm-hmm. And then he, Sam would say, and then I would say, so, and then, so what day was that in the week? And Sam will say, probably like on a Monday, for the Monday before the Saturday. And I'll say, okay, so you had about five days before the date. What did you think about it throughout the week? <laughs> and both of them. And, oh, well, I thought about making sure I got groomed properly. I thought about, are we going to make out? Are we going to have sex? Do I want to have sex right away? Where are we going to eat? And I said, so how did your body feel when you would, were thinking in mm-hmm. anticipation of this date? Oh, I was so psyched. It was hard to, I was kind of distracted mm-hmm. at work. I worked out an extra time just so that my muscles would be like really firm, right? So I said, so you were A, planning anticipating and excited and it really worked up your energy and your your taste for what was to come on that day right and I'll agree right right so how is that any different now such a wonderful point <laughs> because people kind of like fast forward to the place that oh we had this kind of hot and heavy spontaneous sex like right before the show they don't remember what all that happened in their mind and anticipation and preparation and all of that so i'm glad that what a great way i might steal it from you <laughs> to go through it with clients also right. Also, the other thing that I I was thinking about as you were talking about the first dilemma, the roommate dilemma, is that that's definitely a very valid point. The kind of people have this break because they perceive their partner now as a family and therefore you you like you don't want to have sex with family because it's taboo. How do you usually navigate that with your clients? Well, I I you know, I believe that it, Esther Perel was the one who beautifully articulated in her book, Made in, Ca- in Captivity, that couples actually need some uh, gap, some dif- dis- distance between them in order to see their partner anew, right? That they're not right next to, if someone's sitting right next to you, it's kind of hard to look at them. Think about it just from a physical, choreographically mm-hmm. point of view. By the way, sidebar, I used to be a dancer and a choreographer, so I use oh, a nice. lot of that in my work. Uh-huh. But when you see your partner across the room at a party or at a bar 
um, and you see them interacting with other people and you see their confidence and kind of the way they are gathering energy from other people, that can be a real turn on. And it's that space, that physical space at times and also emotional space that allows you to become re-engaged, re-interested in your partner. And when people become roommates, right, they live together, they become like best friends, which is fine, but they're doing everything together. And the underpinnings of Esther's work, because Esther Perel and I came up from the same roots of family therapy. Uh, she graduated from Mnuchin's, Salvador Mnuchin's Institute. I studied there before I then went off and did postgraduate work at Ackerman mm-hmm. um, in family therapy, the Ackerman Institute for the Family. But the roots of family therapy included in that are the work of, is the work of Murray Bowen. And Murray Bowen was a family therapist. And one of his key contributions to the field is the notion of differentiation. Mm -hmm. And differentiation is where you can be in your own body, standing on your own two feet, while also being in relationship with another person. And this is a delicate balance. And I think the roommate quandary or dilemma is when two partners become so close and merge with one another, they do everything together, that there's no room for like separate interests or um, an individual hobby or social life that then um, re-energizes that person intellectually, emotionally, and sensually to bring back to the relationship and reinvigorate that erotic connection. Thank you for clarifying that. And I think when couple have the stance that one person is more differentiated, they, they have their own hobbies, and the other partner is not necessarily as differentiated. They, their definition of the relationship is that we're going to do everything together all the time. They might experience the partners kind of having their hobbies and interests as a threat. And that's going to be hard for them to kind of like tolerate. Well, it's a great segue into the topic also of jealousy, Nas, mm-hmm. because I, I just actually published my latest blog in Psychology Today. I have a blog on Psych Today called Sex Esteem, which is also the title of my web show on YouTube and also uh, the title of my blog on my website, centerforloveandsex.com. So I wrote about jealousy, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the Um, contributors to it, right? If one partner is more differentiated or much more differentiated Mm -hmm. than their other, the other partner, even not only the relationships that partner may have, but actually the, the activities themselves become a point of contention in the couple. Like, you know, you love your golf more than you love me, or you'd rather go for a six hour bike ride than spend time with me and be sensual with me in a bathtub, right? Mm -hmm. So it becomes a, either or black and white conversation as opposed to how do we make room for each of our own individual pursuits that we can then bring our energy back and reinvigorate our sensual connection. 
It's great that you wrote about jealousy. It's one of my favorite topic to <laughs> to read and talk about. And I'm definitely please send us the link if you have it, so we can put it on the show notes for our listeners to also check it out. But with the jealousy, it's such a kind of a fine, I feel line that some sometimes people are going to come into my office, and I would imagine that's the case for you. They're saying that oh, that like his biking practice, like a uh, hobby, or his I don't know passion for this group that he's part of is like a third relationship and I cannot tolerate that it feels like I'm abandoned so and people feel jealous around those those even hobbies not even the people and they kind of see it as another element that gets in the way how do you recommend people who are experiencing this kind of a, a strong emotion and reaction to their partner's interest to navigate this kind of like this this pattern because what I'm hearing, it seems like it could be possibly helpful for the sexual connection if each partner have some, some life outside the relationship. Right. I think you have to do some own, your own individual reflective work about what is that prompting you? Did you have a pre-existing fear of abandonment even before you met this person that would get triggered frequently? Was there something in your past that you know, caused you to feel like people aren't dependable, that if they are too uh, separate, that they uh, are no longer interested in you or you're not enough for that person. So that's one part to it. And the other I would say is, again, another caveat, like I think there are extremes, right? In Mm -hmm. terms of if someone is working seven days a week and indeed not spending, you know, as much time with their partner as they did before, that has to be negotiated, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like frequency of sex, frequency of being with one another has to be negotiated, right? Like how often do you want to spend time with your partner? Are there certain nights of the week or certain days you definitely want to be together? And how? And maybe your partner doesn't want to spend as much time with you. That's something to be like consciously discussed and negotiated. And I think for the person who has more leanings towards jealousy, working on the fact that it may not be personal. It may just be their comfort level with intimacy, right? That they probably practiced in other religious relationships before you. Um, I think getting that understanding of your partner's history and that, that kind of that's what their comfort level is. Both people have to actually move together and do some, some movement. And that's what, you know, the definition of compromise is, you know, Each person has to actually give a little of their comfort level in order to satisfy and give to their partner. Right. And I think, as as you mentioned correctly, that it could be also a form of avoidance, right? If the hobby that people are having is like, I'm going at 5 a.m. at the gym before you're waking up and coming in home late. So maybe perhaps I'm trying to avoid having sex with you or being emotionally close to you. So it's such a fine line for people to kind of like, look at things and it seems like it's a kind of more individual basis kind of right. assessment that people need to do. Right. So, so some of the other reasons why, I mean, I'm not going to go into past infidelity because that's a whole bucket of its own, but certainly it's, it's important to mention that people may be jealous because their partner may have been unfaithful to them at some point within their relationship. There's always that sense of distrust that lurks and comes out in the form of jealousy. The thing I want to go back to in terms of, you know, the unconscious reasons for avoidance is certainly sexual disorders contribute to 
unconscious avoidance of sex. So common ones include uh, erectile dysfunction or disorder. So if a man has had experience of 75% of the time, he's having difficulty either attaining, like getting a, 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 an erection or maintaining it during some sort of sexual activity. If they haven't gone for help and it continues to be a problem, the domino effect is that he will avoid sex with his partner because it's a, an area of a deep fear, embarrassment, shame, not wanting to disappoint himself and or his partner. Or partners. So that's one that's commonly discussed when I do a, a full assessment. Another one that's also common is sexual pain. Mm-hmm. And this I see more frequently with women, although it can be with men as well. But for the most part, the vulva pain or the vestibule pain that occurs for many, many women, including younger women, I see a lot of young women with uh, pain that has never been addressed, diagnosed properly and treated. You know, they avoid because they don't want to be in pain. So that's like our body, our human body's Mm. natural reaction to pain, right, is get away from it and avoid any situation in which it might happen. So even if their partner starts to stroke their arm and kiss their neck, which they normally would find enjoyable, they see that as a signal of someone coming on to them and initiating sex. And they know if I agree to being cuddled and smooched and all of that, he or she is going to anticipate that I'm going to have penetrative sex. And I know what that feels like. So I better just avoid the whole situation. Very important. I think that can be the starting point for many people's kind of like their sexual life getting off track when they start experiencing the sexual dysfunctions and they feel kind of embarrassed about it and they don't know where to turn to get support. They think, okay, this is now it's my new identity and they try to navigate around it by not having sex. So I'm glad that you brought brought those points up. Yeah, and I would just urge people, women, if you're having pain during intercourse, take it off the table and get, you know, seek out a gynecologist, a medical provider in your neck of the woods that understands something about pain. There is a a society, I'm sure you can link to it Mm -hmm. afterwards, Nas, of it's the International Society for Pelvic Pain Disorders. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember if that's exactly the proper name, but look for somebody who understands and knows how to assess and diagnose and then get treatment for it. Absolutely. And it's very important to go to a specialist. I shared with our listeners that I had a history of pain and the recommendation I got from the gynecologist was like, oh, perhaps if you have a couple glasses of wine (laughs) before sex, that would resolve the issue, which obviously didn't, but not everyone is informed about what are the best practices when it comes to treatments of these issues. Right. And the other thing I say to both partners is if you continue to practice penetrative sex in which you're, you're in pain, you are now building up a biofeedback uh, relationship between your body and your mind that associates sexuality with pain. And what you want to do is break that and create a new feedback or neuropathway between your body and mind that re-invites you to enjoy sexuality without pain. So by taking any sort of painful penetrative experience off the table and agreeing and being willing to enter 
a sexual encounter that involves no penetration, it brings back the pleasure and it brings back the association with your partner and to sexuality of this can be joyful, this can be fun, this can be playful, and I can have a good time. And my fear can go down because we've said, established boundaries and rules that for now, we are not going to have any penetrative sex until the pain is, it goes away. I love that recommendation. It's so important because sometimes people rush into wanting to have sex because they want to put all these painful memories behind them and that's not going to work out. And uh, sorry, I feel like you're wealth of <laughs> great knowledge that I want to kind of talk about all these things with you. And But I wanted to also, I guess, like to have a teaser about your approach with sexual sculpting. I know I, I enjoyed kind of learning about it at the conference and I know it on its own, it was an hour long training. <laughs> so mm -hmm. Give us a little bit of understanding of how would that work, especially that we have several therapists, half of our listeners are therapists about, tell us how, how do you use it in your practice? Great. So yeah, I did this presentation at the ASECT conference at, uh, in Philadelphia last month, and I'm actually going to be presenting it as a webinar for ASECT CEs on my, on my site. So if you're interested in getting notifications about upcoming webinars, I already have webinars recorded on my site for ASECT CDs and for New York State Social Workers Continuing Education Hours. You can email, you can join my mailing list just on um, the homepage of centerforloveandsex.com and you'll get an announcement. So I'm also, by the way, going to upload the video that I showed. I showed clips of video during the presentation showing how to do this with couples. So you can either see that in the video on um, the webinar side for professionals, but I'm also going to create a video that just regular people can purchase and download for themselves to work at this exercise because it's really helpful. So sexual sculpting was created, it's influenced by Peggy Papp's work, who's a well-known family therapist with whom I studied at Ackerman. Institute. And it's for the couple that seems to go around in circles in terms of their arguing that in, uh, doesn't really get anywhere. It's for partners who or partner who is extremely intellectual and cerebral and the arguments are really about winning. And it's for uh, partners or couples who really don't have access to an emotional affect that they can describe. So it's for those people who say, I get totally into my head, or I feel like deer in the headlights, or things like that. So basically, it uses the form of improv, like a theater improv exercise, to create a fairy tale as a metaphor for the emotional conflict that they're feeling about the pro presenting problem with their partner. So each partner gets a chance to tell a fairy tale. And within that fairy tale, they are not themselves. They are a character. It could be an established fairy tale like Hansel and Gretel or, you know, you know Sleeping Beauty and the Prince. It can be any of those. Or it can be a description that's made up from scratch of two forms or characters that are related to one another. And in the session, a therapist asks them to tell the story and then gets them up off the couch or the chair 
soon after they begin telling the story and ask them to please direct the action Mm -hmm. so that they can actually physically in the room enact the story of the problem. Mm -hmm. And they tell their partner like a director would, you know, you sit over here, I'm going to stand over here. Usually they need the therapist to help Mm -hmm. them become a director. So you by asking questions. So if he's in a castle and he's the imprisoned princess, wouldn't he be above you? And then that you find a way for him to get higher up. And then, so how far down are you and what's the distance between you? And then you talk about efforts that they have made to solve the problem. And you'll say, well, so what did you try to do here? Well, I tried to climb the castle walls. Show me. I climb like this. And then I would say, well, what happened when you tried to climb? Well, I kept falling down and hurting myself. Mm -hmm. Or I almost reached the top, but then I couldn't open the doors, the shutters, and my fingers were hurt. Or he told me to get away. So you're, you're exploring the efforts that have been made thus far and what was the physical damage to this Mm -hmm. character. And then you go into, well, what did it feel like for this character to try all these different efforts and it didn't happen? And you go for the feelings that they were having in the efforts. And then you ask, well, what could be a solution that you haven't tried? And they enact it out. So you're getting actually the feeling states You're letting them show what efforts they did, which, by the way, their partner may not be fully aware of. The feeling states allow their partners to empathize with them. And you can say, well, what do you think the prince feels like when he's tried to climb the castle like so many times? So you gain access to empathy that may not have been there with all their arguing. And then you get the hope, right? So what's a, you know, if you had a million dollars, you know, if you had a magic wand, what could they do? What's another solution? Mm -hmm. So it accesses in a metaphoric way, all the feelings, hopes, and brainstorming that people don't have access when they're too busy in an argument wanting to win the fight. Love that. I think uh, it's just so fantastic because I feel sometimes when we do only talk therapy, people get stuck into stories that they they are well rehearsed and going round and round talking about same things. But if with this, it seems like you are helping them to make their mind-body connection and also they're approaching this issue from a different perspective that, that might hopefully open other new doors for them. Yeah, and the lovely thing about it is it also becomes then a blueprint by which you can measure the progress of the couple. And I and my couples, my, you know, my clients refer back to them, to the enactments over and over again. Mm -hmm. So what can we do? I just did it this week, actually. So here seems to be another example of where you're racing, you know, you're three miles ahead of your partner. What can we do for you to bring it back a bit? And what can we do for you to, to catch up to her a bit? Right. And so there was and they remember and I actually like point in the room where the enactment where they acted it out and it becomes a shorthand, which has been very useful and very helpful. And also to say, look how far you've come. Mm-hmm. Here's an example in which you in past you would have been five miles down, but now you're like only two miles ahead of them. Right. 
so beautiful and and i love this kind of adapt adoption is that did you adopt it for sex therapy yourself or is that something i did no it's i i take exercises that have been helpful for me both as a therapist and actually as a dancer and i bring them and i do a hack and and use them for sex therapy so that's why i've called it sexual sculpting which is my term for it that's fantastic because at times I feel we don't have enough tools and strategies specifically for sex therapy. So thank you for introducing that. And I highly, highly encourage people to go and check out your webinar and also the resources you have around that because it's, I love that you appreciate that you summarize it for people. But I think if that's something you want to implement in your practice, I encourage, I encourage you guys to go ahead and Check it out. So, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing all this wonderful knowledge and experiences that you have with us. Is there any anything else you wanted to share with our listeners before we end our conversation today? Yeah. Um, if you're interested in contacting me directly about getting seen, because we our Center for Love and Sex also does sex coaching, you can email me at sari at, it's S-A-R-I, at centerforloveandsex.com all spelled out, or my coordinator and take coordinator at coordinator at centerforloveandsex.com. You could please follow me on Instagram. It's Sari Cooper Sex Esteem. And on Twitter, I'm Sari Cooper CLS, which is for Center for Love and Sex. And my Facebook page, which is just Sari Cooper Center for Love and Sex. Uh, so I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, concerns, interest in workshops, and webinars. I'm in New York City. I'm hoping to do more travel. So if you feel like in your neck of the woods, you could do some, you know, use some more training for general therapy and sex, sexual issues pertaining to couples therapy, please let me know. I'm always interested. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much. And I leave all those links in the show notes. And it was wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Bye. I hope you found my interview with Sari helpful. I certainly learned a lot about sexual avoidance pattern and what can you do to change the stance. And as I shared during the interview, this is something I see often in my practice that people are not necessarily don't have sexual desire, but because of the history of what happened in the relationship, at times could be a conflict that they had with the partner. At times there are some unresolved issues around sexual dysfunction, as Sari mentioned, or things that are going on in the relationship that gets in the way of them wanting to have sex. And at times this not wanting to have sex, as Sari mentioned, could be very subtle. So I encourage you to take an honest look up in your relationship and think about what are some of the not so subtle ways that you are pushing away your partner and uh, you're avoiding sex? And what can you do differently? I love that when Sari was talking about the sexual sculpting and kind of talking about what have you tried and what worked and what didn't work. Because at times people coming to my practice and they want to kind of continue to try the same thing that they tried for decades and they didn't see results. And if this is a struggle that you're having and you feel you're kind of feel out of option, it'd be a good good time to consult with sex therapist. If you're in New York, 
Siri is a wonderful option. You can contact us if you're in LA or I work internationally with clients. Anyhow, this was our show. I love you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, I really appreciate it if you share it with your friends. Have a lovely afternoon, morning, or evening, and I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.